you're visiting with us tonight or new to the evening service, we're in the middle of a sermon series in uh, St. Paul's letter to the Galatians. If you have a Bible, please turn uh, in it to Galatians. Um, If you're using a pew Bible tonight, we're on page 975 in the pew Bible. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 25 is what we're going to look at tonight for a few minutes. Galatians 5, 16 through 25. So let me read that for us. Then we'll pray, and then we'll dive in. Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 16, Paul writes, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you were led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who practice or do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let's ask God to help us understand this part of the Word. Father, we come and pray asking you to do what you always do for us. Send your spirit now to work through your word, helping us, equipping us both to understand what's being said here, to believe what's being said here, and to be affected and changed by what's being said here by you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's the question for tonight. Um, How do people really, really change? Um, How do you, if you're a Christian, how do you actually grow? in faith and in hope and in love? How can your life be transformed and renewed? And how can you stop doing some of the things you know you need to stop doing and start doing some of the things you need to start doing and then doing those things more consistently and doing these things less and less and less consistently? How do you change? You know, that's a big, big question, not just for Christians, but for really anyone Um, And there are a lot of bad answers to that question out there. Paul, in a sense, wrote the letter to the churches in Galatia to answer that question. How is it that we can be changed? How can we experience life transformation and renewal as a process gradually over time? How can we mature? How can we grow? That's the question that Paul's going to address pretty specifically in this text that I've just read for us. This is one of the most important texts in the whole Bible, actually, in answering that question. And so what we're going to do is divide it up into two different sermons. I'm not going to try and cover it all tonight. Tonight, we're going to look at part of it, and then next time, we're going to look at the second half. Um, But that's where we're headed tonight. We want to see what Paul has to say for us about change, about life transformation. 
But before we get there, let me remind you a little bit about what's been going on in this letter so far. Paul wrote this letter a couple of thousand years ago to a number of churches in a region that was then known as Galatia. It was what is now south-central Turkey. And he wrote that letter to churches he had planted and then left to go do other missionary work. And after he had left, some other men had come in and began teaching things that Paul would not have agreed with. These men are called in the New Testament the Judaizers. And what these men basically said was this. We think it's great, Galatians, that you've placed your faith and your trust in Jesus for salvation, for forgiveness of your sins, for renewal of your lives, for transformation of your relationships. That's a wonderful thing. Jesus is absolutely essential. You must believe in Jesus, but Jesus is not sufficient. They came with a a hybrid gospel, an updated gospel, a version 2.0 gospel. The Judaizer, quote, gospel was a Jesus plus gospel. Paul writes this letter to answer this new teaching in the churches that he had planted in Galatia, which were being swayed under the influence of these Judaizers. And the basic point that Paul's trying to make is that if you put a plus after Jesus when talking about the gospel, you lose the gospel. Jesus plus nothing is the gospel. Jesus plus anything is no gospel at all, as he says in chapter 1, verse 6. And so, in many different ways throughout this letter, he has been pummeling the Galatian churches with that message again and again and again. Last time, we saw that the Judaizers think that that is actually quite a dangerous message. They think, well, Paul doesn't think the law is important. Paul doesn't think we have to be circumcised to be a part of God's family. Paul doesn't think we have to keep Torah and keep kosher and keep the Sabbath. All he thinks is you just have to believe in Jesus and you're good to go. And the Judaizers were saying, listen, that's dangerous. That's going to lead to people being licentious. It's going to lead to people disobeying. It's going to lead to people just discarding God's law entirely. And last time Paul addressed that issue, he said, Yes, Jesus is everything. Yes, the gospel is by faith alone and not by works of the law. But that doesn't mean, he said, that the law is unimportant. We saw that in chapter 13 through, excuse me, verses 13 through 15 of chapter 5. He, in fact, said that we must obey the law, the way of love. The law shows us how to love our neighbor, but we can't do that in and of our own power. He says throughout Galatians that we need a We need a supernatural infusion of the Holy Spirit into our spiritual bloodstream if we're ever going to fulfill and obey God's law. So no Judaizers, Paul said, no Judaizers. I'm not saying that the law is irrelevant. I'm not saying that the law isn't important. But what I am saying is that by obedience to the law, you can't be right with God. But being right with God makes you and causes you to obey the law. And so tonight, Paul sort of picks up where he left off and broadens his scope from thinking just about obeying God's law and the role of God's law in the Christian life to thinking about the broader question that I addressed at the outset. How is it that people change? And so tonight, I've got three big points for you. And again, remember, we're not covering it all tonight. Come back next time for the second part of this part of Galatians. But three points for you tonight. You can find them on your outline, the back of the bulletin. If you want to use that, that's fine. We want to see the fight, we want to see the opponent, and we want to see the victory. The fight, the opponent, the victory. You ready? Okay, 
First, the fight. Look at verse 16, 17, 18 with me. One of the first things you probably noticed there in verse 17 is the contrast that Paul sets up. You see it there? The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and vice versa. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these, these two things, these two lusts, these two desires are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Now, the Spirit there is a reference to the Holy Spirit. And when Paul uses that word flesh, as we've spoken about a little bit in this series already, he's really, that's a junk drawer term. Um, it's like opening your junk drawer and there's a bunch of different things in there. That's what flesh is. Flesh is just Paul's shorthand for anything in our lives that is still opposed to God and his will. Any remnants of our old sinful nature that has sort of been left behind. That is what Paul means by flesh. And so what he's saying here is that the Christian life Once you've come to faith in Jesus, if you're here and you're a Christian, a large part of your Christian life is about the fight. It's about the fight between the flesh, that part of you that is still opposed to the Lord Jesus Christ and his rule and his teachings against the spirit, that supernatural infusion of divine power, the presence and person of the Holy Spirit that has come into your hearts at the moment of belief. These two things are... They're engaged in in a cosmic conflict inside of your hearts. It's It's like a spiritual civil war taking place inside of you every hour of every day if you're a Christian. You ever played tug of war? I haven't. I'm not very good at it, actually. Um, I've watched really big, strong guys play tug of war. And, and, you know, I can imagine just sort of being in the middle of that rope. (laughs) <laughs> right? Maybe uh, over the mud pit. As the guys pull this way and pull this way, the force is going this way, and then these guys take a little rest and burst up their energy and pull back this way. It's just a back and forth, a back and forth. It's a, it's a battle of the wills. It's a battle of two powers. It's a battle of two aggressors. That's the Christian life. The Christian life is, Paul's telling us here, a fight. It's like a huge game of tug of war between the flesh and between the spirit. So let's think about that for just a minute in a more concrete way, in a more practical way. If you're here tonight and you're a new Christian, you're young in your faith, or if you're not a Christian tonight, if you're maybe thinking about Christianity, if you want to know a little bit more about what Christianity is, if you're starting to read the Bible, this is, this is an important thing for you to get right at the outset. Becoming a Christian does not equal an ending of your struggle. The Christian life, Paul's telling us here, is in large part a conflict, a fight. And it's something that's, that's distinctively Christian, I think Paul's saying. Now, I'm not meaning to imply that non-Christians, that those who aren't believers, don't have any sort of moral conflict. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that it is distinctive in particular for Christians because we have, in a very real way, two different natures within us. A supernatural new man, a new nature, a nature that's been brought to life by the resurrection power of Jesus, and an old man, the flesh, that nature that's still controlled by sin. And these two are fighting. These two are going at it. So don't think that becoming a Christian means a ceasing of hostilities an ending of conflict. 
You know, I do a, a good bit of premarital counseling, and that's one of the things that I often see when I'm counseling young, engaged couples. Um, they're very happy. They're very excited, which is a good thing. <laughs> you should be excited about marriage. Uh, they're happy about marriage. They're looking forward to their marriage. And then when we start talking about some of the, frankly, some of the darker elements of their hearts, some of the deeper struggles with sin that they experience, very often what I hear is, well, uh, I know I struggle with this now, but when I get married, that's going to diminish and dissipate. And, and one of my jobs as a pastor, if I'm going to be a good pastor and a good counselor to them, is to tell them, whoa, 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 hit the light, you know, hit the brakes, red light, stop. Don't think that marriage means an end to the conflicts in your heart. Don't think that marriage means an end to the dark parts of your life. Nope. It means those things are just going to be exposed more and more and more. And I see you married people nodding your heads. Thank you for reminding me that your, my experience isn't unique. That's good. So it's just the same with the Christian life. Don't think that becoming a Christian, don't think as a young Christian that the, the conflict has ended now. That's not the case. Another point here, if, if you've been a Christian for a while and you're discouraged with the fight, if you're struggling with the fight, you're tired, tired of the fight. Let this text actually be an encouragement to you. You know, there's no part of the Christian life, there's never going to be a day where you don't have conflict between the flesh and the spirit. Yes, we get tired of that from time to time, but it's, frankly, it's not going to end. And here's where the encouraging part comes. I promise it's coming. Here it is. The fact that you're still sort of feeling the conflict and feeling the struggle and, and feeling the fight is, is actually a good sign. It's a sign that you're not apathetic. It's a sign that you're not hardened. It's a sign that you're not unaware of the struggles and the sins and the issues that you still have. That's a good thing. It's a good thing. You know, think about the Christian life uh, as an ongoing renovation project. You know, I've been to DFW Airport a good bit lately, and I've been going to DFW Airport my entire life. And every time I go to DFW, there is a massive construction project taking place, either on the inside or the outside of that airport. And it always is, you know, traffic is going this way, people are being diverted this way or that way. It's a disaster all the time. And a couple of times when I've been on the little tram and I can see outside, I've noticed that they're actually sometimes taking like the rubble from the old buildings or contraptions that they've knocked down and using that rubble to rebuild new things. It's just a constant renovation project. But DFW looks better now than it did in 1974, hopefully. It's the Christian life. It's a constant renovation project. It's using the rubble of your old life to rebuild your life in new and refreshing ways. Listen to this quote from J.C. Ryle about the fight. Here's what he says. We may take comfort, Christians, about our souls if we know anything of an inward fight and conflict. Did you hear that? Take comfort if you feel a fight and conflict. It is the invariable companion of genuine Christian holiness. It is not everything, but it is something. Do we find in our heart of hearts a spiritual struggle? Do we feel anything of the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh? Are we conscious of two principles within us contending for the mastery? Do we feel anything of war in our inward man? Well, let us thank God for it. It is a good sign. It is strongly probable evidence of the great work of sanctification. Listen, all true saints are soldiers. 
Anything is better than apathy, stagnation, deadness, and indifference. So, given then that there is this fight, this constant cosmic conflict going on in the life of each of you who are believers in Jesus, what do we see in this passage about our opponent? We know there's a fight. So secondly, let's look at this idea of the opponent. Look with me again, verses 19, 20, 21. Here we see one of uh, these, what we might think of as uh, unfortunate lists that come from time to time from the Apostle Paul. He gives us here 15 works of the flesh, he calls them, things that are signs of spiritual deadness. And he says that these things are evident, verse 19. And this list, he says, isn't exhaustive. At the end of 21, he says, uh, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So there's other things. He just gives 15 here. And there's a lot we can say about this. I just want to make three real quick points about our opponent. First, I want you to notice that there are both sins here that are usually seen as sins of the irreligious, and there are sins here that are usually seen as sins of the religious. There are both irreligious, quote-unquote, sins, not that religious people don't ever struggle with those, but generally speaking, the way we talk about these sins is those are the sins that the irreligious people commit, and we also see here sins that the religious people, quote-unquote, commit. We see here older brother sins and younger brother sins. And here's why that's important. Most of you here, I know, are religious folks. That's why you come to church on a Sunday night. You're, you're by and large, probably religious. And so here's what our danger is when we read a list like this. We start going through verse 19. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality. Oh, man. I know a lot of people who struggle with that one. Sorcery. Yeah, I don't have a big warlock problem in my life, but I'm sure that's, that's out there somewhere. Drunkenness and orgies and idolatry. Yeah, those are definite sins, definite works of the flesh. Easy to expose those. I see those all the time. And our danger is to deflect the things that we're most affected and infected by and to think not of ourselves and our own hearts, but of the hearts of those irreligious folks down the street. And, and that's dangerous because any time we read a list like this in the New Testament and our initial thought is, man, I know that so-and-so really, really needs to read this part of the Bible. I think I'm going to make a Xerox copy and give it to him after church tonight. Big problem. Big problem. Because the Bible is intended to go through you first and only then out to others. And so we, as religious folks, tend to look at these irreligious sins and, and maximize those and minimize the religious sins. It's, it's sort of like, you know, going to an eye exam and looking at that eye chart with one eye open and the real big letters, you know, that big E on the top. That's the, that's the irreligious. Sexual immorality. Boom. Sorcery. <laughs> you know, right there. Very easy for us to see. And all the stuff that we struggle with are the little words down at the bottom that no one can read. You know, it's easy for us to pick out the sins that we aren't particularly dealing with, but it's very hard for us to actually be affected and and convicted with the things we are struggling with. And part of the reason for that is because we've become so accustomed, not with sorcery and witchcraft necessarily, but with fits of anger and enmity and strife and jealousy and rivalries and dissensions and divisions and envy. You guys ever seen that movie Ratatouille? Hilarious movie. 
Pixar movie, animated, about two rats. Yes, it's about two rats. They're animated rats who live in Paris. And one of these rats' dream is to become like a world-class chef. He would be the only world-class rat chef, I have no doubt. But, you know, he lives in Paris. He's experienced great French food. He has a very refined palate and sense of taste and sense of smell. And he loves to cook just this illust- these illustrious, wonderful meals. And his best friend, this other rat, sort of fat, out-of-shape rat, um, loves to eat trash. And really, the whole plot of the movie revolves around this rat with the refined palate, helping the rat who loves to eat trash come to enjoy the finer things in life. And at one point in this really funny scene, this really is, it's a funny movie. We watched a little bit of it with the kids, and they didn't get any of it, but Marianne and I were cracking up a couple of weeks ago. Um, One great scene, I'm going to read it here. Uh, He's just disgusted that his friend's eating all this trash, and he's like, I can't believe the the refined rat. I can't believe you're eating that stuff. You live in Paris, for crying out loud. Start eating some good food. And, And here's what the fat unhealthy, trash-eating rat says. He says this, you know, once you get past the gag reflex, all kinds of possibilities open up. (laughs) You know, that's true with your struggles. Once you get past the the initial gag reflex of, of enmity, And the initial gag reflex of of rivalries and fits of anger and envy and jealousy. All sorts of very, very bad possibilities open up. So don't read this list, religious person, older brother, and think, oh, this is one of those lists that all my irreligious, non-Christian, pagan friends need to read. Read this list and think, I need to repent. (laughs) First thing. Second thing, okay? Second thing. If you look at this list, one thing you'll notice is that by far the majority of these things refer to community-breaking sins. You see that there? Dissension, rivalries, divisions, jealousy, envy, all of those things imply community. And so the thing to take here is that our opponent loves to break down relationships. Our opponent loves to destroy community. And so purity and holiness, on the other hand, means having a certain relational tenacity in our lives. You know, let's, let's make that concrete. As you read this list, maybe some of the questions that you should be asking myself are, are questions like these. You know, do I think, what's worse in my book? A guy who struggles for a long time with sexual immorality and sexual sin and eventually falls, or the guy or girl who's constantly gossiping and slandering her brother and sister in the church. What's worse? And you know, the answer is both. You should maybe ask yourself a question like, do I understand that holiness and purity, by and large, is all about not necessarily, although this is part of it, not necessarily what I'm watching on TV or on the internet, but Maybe even primarily it's all about the way I I speak about my brothers and my sisters. When I say something like, you know, you know, Joe, so-and-so's not here. And if they were here, I probably wouldn't see I say this. But 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 did you hear? Dot dot dot. When you when you look at what someone else has and what you don't have, and you get really bothered and flustered and, and flummoxed by that, you realize that you are being impure and unholy in those moments. You see. 
building community and nurturing community and helping community to flourish is a big part of what Paul's getting at here. It's a big sign of, of Christian health. And the lack of that, community being destroyed, if you can't hold a friendship for longer than six months without stabbing your friend in the back or without divulging a secret or without getting mad at them or frustrated with them and not living in a repentant lifestyle with them and not confessing your sin towards them, that's probably a sign that the works of flesh are are just sort of festering in your life. So when we think about our opponent then, first, remember the religious sins. Second, their community-breaking sins. Community is a big factor here. And third, look at verse 21. This is a sober verse, but we've got to touch on it. He lists those 15 things, and then he says, I warn you, as I warned you before, as I warned you when I was there with you in Galatia, that those who do, that verb is not a good translation probably. It probably should be practice or have a lifestyle of these things, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who live like this, let that, let that sink in, friends. Let that sink in, brothers and sisters. Paul's saying here, he's not saying here that there's no place. He's not saying, listen, he's not saying there's no place in the Christian life for struggling. But he is saying that there is no place in the Christian life for throwing in the towel. There's no place in the Christian life for giving up. There's no place in the Christian life. You cannot call yourself a believer in Jesus and then say, I'm going to continue to live like this. I don't care what you think. Christians do not do that. And this is a sober reminder, a serious reminder, but an important reminder that not just me as a a minister of God's word, but all of us who are ministering to one another and relating to one another in Christ's church from time to time perhaps will have the duty and the opportunity to say to a fellow professor of Jesus, liars, fornicators, greedy and idolatrous people will not inherit God's kingdom. You must repent. Paul's not saying if you got drunk on Friday, you're you're out for good. He's not saying if you were mad at your wife this afternoon, you're out. He's not saying that. But he is saying if you continue to live in this way without repentance, you have no part of God. So our opponent, friends, our opponent is strong, our opponent is fierce, and the stakes are high. Paul tells us about the fight. He tells us about the opponent. Now, real quickly, last point, he tells us about the victory, the victory. And we're going to talk more about this next time. But let me just highlight a couple of things real quick here, okay? Look at verse 24 and 25. Those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Okay, so how do we actually change, right? How do we deal with the opponent? How do we fight against the flesh? Given these qualities of the flesh, how do we achieve victory over them? A couple of things I want you to notice real quick, okay? Hang with me. There's passive elements and active elements here. Look at verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus. Look at verse 25. If we live by the Spirit. Those are passive. Those are things that have happened to us if we've believed in the gospel. We now belong, as Paul's been telling us throughout Galatians, we now belong to Jesus. 
That is something that is true of you now, whether you feel that that's true of you now or not. If you have believed in the gospel, you now live by the Spirit. The Spirit has come into your life. That is true of you now. Whether you feel like it's true of you now or not, you were passive in that interchange. That's something that's happened to you. Your identity has been changed. You now no longer belong to the devil and to the world. You now belong, Paul says, to Jesus. That's the passive side. And you've got to get that. You've got to live, as we've been saying throughout Galatians, out of that identity. You've got to believe. A large part in the victory is believing, believing, believing that that's true, that that is where you are, that that is what defines you. There's a passive side in the victory. And there's an active side. Look at what he says. I'm in Ephesians now. That's not good. Okay, here we go. Uh, Those who belong to Jesus Christ, what? Have crucified. Look at 25. If we live by the Spirit, what? Let us also walk. Active verb. Let us crucify, fight, kill the flesh. Active verb. You see what he's saying? If these passive things are true of you, if you belong to Jesus, if you live in the realm of the Spirit, then also you must be active. You must crucify and kill sin. You must get up and walk by the Spirit. There's both a passive and an active side to achieving victory, to having life change. And if you skip one or the other, you're dead meat. If you skip the passive side, if you skip what Jesus says about your identity now and just go straight to trying to do things and fight things, you've gone down the way of legalism, which we talked about last time. And you're becoming a Pharisee and you're becoming one who looks down on others when you're victorious and who looks down on yourself when you fail. But if you just have the passive side and then skip the actual fighting sin and the actual walking by the Spirit, you've gone down the way of license. You've said, yes, I belong to Jesus. Yes, I live by the Spirit. No, I'm not going to walk by the Spirit. No, I'm not going to put forth effort in fighting sin. No, I'm not going to get up early and have a quiet time. No. That's not healthy either. You have to have both. You have to believe what is true of you and then live like it's true. There's a a passivity to faith and an activity to faith. And that's how you achieve victory. It's the only way only way you will have change. We'll talk more about that next week, but let me close with this. I've told this story before. Uh, I think it's just, for my life, it's been helpful. Uh, When I was younger, you know, late high school, early college, uh, was coming into adulthood and gaining responsibility and growing in maturity from time to time. I'm sure this is going to shock you, but, but from time to time, I would do something stupid or foolish and, and my dad would find out about it sometimes. And one of the things he would say to me is, Luke, act your age. You're a grown-up. It's time to act like it. You're not a child anymore. Put away childish things. Stop being foolish. And that, that is exactly, exactly what Paul is saying here. You are in Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. The Spirit has come into your heart. Act like it. Be what you are already. He doesn't say, try really hard to kill sin so that the Spirit will come into your heart. He says, the Spirit has come into your heart, therefore, act like it and kill sin. 
And if you reverse those two things, you're dead. Again, there's no change. But when you get them both, change is going to happen. Be what you are. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, which gives to us both grace. It tells us of what's true of us through faith in Jesus, through belief in the gospel. And it also challenges us and motivates us to obedience. And Lord, tonight we pray as we go out this week and enter again into the fight and face the opponent of the works of the flesh, that we would not just be passive, that we would not just believe that we are in Christ and then go and not live like it, and also that we would not just be active, trying to fight and kill sin, trying to walk by the Spirit without believing that our identity has already been changed by the Spirit. Help us rather, Father, to both have a passive faith that's resting in Christ and an active faith that's fighting for Christ. Lord, we need your help to do that. Every day we're going to struggle with that. But we thank you that although we do fight battles every day, the war has already been determined through the life, death, and resurrection of your Son. And we pray now as we come to the table that you would fill our hearts, our hearts with that good news and cause us to celebrate that victory. We pray it in your name. Amen.